All right, let's open up our Bibles to Mark chapter 9. And if you need a Bible, if you would lift up your hand really high, anyone need a Bible out here today? Uh, we'd love to put one in your hands. Anyone out there? We got one right here. Anyone else? Just lift it up high. Because we're going to be looking at Mark chapter 9. So open up there. And I want us to think big picture today. As I have been meditating on this passage for the last number of weeks, um, even going back to when Eric was taking us through the last little bit of chapter 8, and then through our reading service last week, the Lord really began to lay on me a certain perspective that I really felt He wanted me to bring to us today. Big picture. I want us to consider the larger point that's being made by Jesus' ministry it's about to take a turn. And so at the end of chapter 8, he began to talk about suffering. He's going to die, be buried, rise again. And this is shocking to the disciples. They've been following Jesus because Jesus is going to bring in the kingdom. And that's what they want. And now this is taking it to a turn. Now he's given the disciples a test at the end of chapter 8. He said, who do people say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And they answer correctly. They pass the quiz. You are the Christ the son of the living God. But what they don't quite understand is what it means to be the Christ. And so Eric even used the terms that when he talks about this son of man must suffer and die and be raised again, it's a combo of Daniel chapter seven, the son of man, the ancient of days, the king of glory, and Isaiah 53, the suffering servant. How do those two come together? That's what doesn't make sense. And they're following Jesus because he's going to bring in the kingdom. And now Jesus is just turning this a little bit. And now in our passage this morning, I really think right in the midst of their confusion, God is going to give them something to hold on to. So they're going to, all these events are going to transpire that Jesus is now talking about. And God's going to give them something to hold on to. And this moment in chapter 9 becomes eventually a defining moment. We're going to see that in Peter's life. A defining moment, something to hold on to. And as I've been thinking about this, partly um, the reason I believe the Lord has, has brought me to, to, uh, to really approach this passage in this way is because I wonder how many of us are here this morning and life is unfolding for us. And there's lots of events, lots of details in our life. And perhaps it's confusing, confusing to us. Or maybe life has taken a turn that we didn't expect 20 years ago, 10 years ago, 5 years ago. If we would have thought about this day in our life, we would have never anticipated what we're up against. And perhaps today God wants to give us something to hold on to. Or maybe we have no idea what's going to happen next for us. And God in his mercy is going to meet you right now and give you something to hold on to that's going to prepare you for whatever lies ahead for you. Let me read through Mark chapter 9, verses 1 through 13. Now, verse 1 really fits with the previous passage. We should have added that to that previous passage when we were working our way through it, but we're still going to look at it today uh, because it's part of our passage. So chapter 9, verse 1. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. 
and he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, this is my beloved son, listen to him. And suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why do scribes say that Elijah must come first? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come and they did to him whatever they pleased as it is written of him. Wow. We open up our Bibles to this and there is nothing, nothing in our lives, nothing really in the Bible that we have to hang this on. This is original. This is a one of a kind. They are going through their everyday life and something spectacular takes place right in front of them. Now, I want us to apply this to our lives and find a way to do that. But before we do, as I approach this passage, there was a few questions that came my way, especially in chapter one. I mean, what does it mean that some will not taste death until they see the kingdom when we ourselves are still looking for that kingdom? You get into this passage and transfigured, what was it that actually happened? And I was reading through all the different gospel accounts and trying to figure out what is this transfiguration? And then the appearance of Moses and Elijah, what's that all about? Well, we want to consider each one of these things, but we want to end up with, well, what does this mean to us? What does it mean for us? What do we have, what do we need to hold on to in our lives? You can see I've entitled the message this morning, Keeping Glory in Our View. And I want to explain more of what that means as we go through our time. But let's look at some of these interesting items. Until they see the kingdom of God is what it says there. Many had thought that Jesus meant actually establishing his reign. And that's what the disciples were looking for. They expected the one who was going to come was going to free them from any kind of um, foreign rule, the kingdoms that were over them, establish his kingdom, right every wrong. Jesus was going to establish his reign. When Mark is written, Peter's already dead. Did he see the kingdom? Well, Peter had no confusion over whether he saw the kingdom or not. When we get to Acts and we start seeing some of Peter's sermons, beginning even in Acts chapter 2, he understands that this kingdom is right on them. And he even says, I may say this to you with confidence. Even in 2 Peter chapter 3, as he's coming to the end of his life and some are saying, well, where's the promise of his coming? If the king's going to be here and bring his kingdom, where is it? And Peter boldly proclaims, the Lord's not slack concerning his promise. He is patient, not willing that any should perish. His kingdom is moving through this world. Many are being added to that kingdom day by day as a result. And so Peter clearly understood What's going on? Well, then how is this kingdom to be understood? Is the entirety of 
the, of its coming with what follows. And there's a number of things that we could put here. The entirety of what is coming, even beginning, some would say, with the transfiguration, the breaking in of God in this world, in the mundane of life, as the disciples are living, boom, God shows up in a powerful, amazing way. But it's probably everything that unfolds from this point on, including Christ's atoning sacrifice on the cross, everything that he's saying about his death, his burial, his resurrection, the, eventually the coming of the Holy Spirit, the extension of the blessing to the Gentiles, fulfilling that promise back to Abraham back in Genesis chapter 12, through you, all the nations of the world, will be blessed. And all of this right here is in addition to everything we've already seen. John the Baptist, the forerunner, make way the way, make, prepare the way of the Lord. And so we've got this forerunner who was there. Jesus and all of his miracles. The voice from heaven earlier that said, this is my beloved son. Jesus reading in the temple when he pulls out the Isaiah scroll and he reads it very um, kingdom focused and he says today this is this is fulfilled in your midst Jesus preaching the kingdom is at hand I mean you've heard us use this term over and over already not yet and that's ultimately the fulfillment here as Jesus comes the kingdom is and it's also not yet he went back to the heavens he's seated at the right hand of the father he's ruling and he's reigning but we still live in the kingdom of this world which one day is going to become the kingdom of our Lord but as we put our faith in Christ we are a part of that and as the gospel goes to the nations the kingdom is spreading even in our midst and so it's really all of these things the entirety of its coming is what Jesus is referring to until they see the kingdom of God now we get to verse 2 and after six days Jesus took with him Peter James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves and he was transfigured before them and so we've got this 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 concept in this passage what does it mean that he was transfigured before them this same word of transfigured is also used in Matthew 17. That's a parallel account. Both accounts use the same word. But then in Luke, it says his appearance was altered. And so there is something in this scene about Jesus that is radically changed right before them. And the focus in most of the gospel accounts is on his clothes. The clothes became radiant. They became intensely white beyond what bleach could do. Okay, beyond Clorox and the brightest it can get it, whatever laundry detergent you use, the stain stick that makes it white again. No, this is way beyond anything like that. In Matthew, it even uses the word white as light. You know, light gets whiter than anything that we can know of. In Luke, it talks about his clothes becoming dazzling, brilliant. White would be the idea. Matthew also adds his face shone like the sun and so there's a brilliance that comes down over this over this scene with the disciples standing there but we also find that this same word transfigured is what is used for spiritual transformation as well we can look at Romans 12 2 we could also look at 2 Corinthians 3 18 what happens to us when we come to Christ when we are in Christ that we were dead in our sins we were slaves to sins but now he's made us alive and alive to righteousness that radical transformation that's the same word that's even used here for Jesus what happens physically something radical takes place 
in this moment. It's very similar to what we use the word metamorphosis. A tadpole turns into a frog or a caterpillar becomes a butterfly. Something radical takes place. There is Jesus and then all of a sudden this scene transpires before them and it's a radical change. It's a complete transformation. In the same way that someone is radically changed when they're given life to Christ, what we have in this moment is a radical physical transformation. Jesus' appearance was temporary changed from that of an ordinary human like Peter, James, and John to a divine being in all of his glory. They had affirmed that he was the Christ, the son of the living God. They knew that theologically. They knew that in their minds. But they're going to struggle with what that means in the days ahead. And then right there in front of them, it becomes apparent. Apparent. Wow, what in the world? I mean, they don't even know what to say. Jesus is transformed into another form, the visible uh, manifestation of his divine nature right there in front of him. Is this not the carpenter's son? Is this not the one who eats with us and sleeps with us and we do ministry together? All that Jesus is saying, this is now the divine assurance of who Jesus is right in their midst. And so as we think about this, it's, a, it's an amazing scene that takes place in front of them. Now, there's more to this scene in verse four. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses and they were talking to Jesus. And so all of a sudden we have Elijah and Moses there too. So, I mean, just trying to take all this in. I, I have questions like how they know it was Moses and Elijah with their greetings extended. Hi, I'm Moses and I'm Elijah. Well, that's cool. High five. I mean, this is really neat. I mean, I can understand why Peter then would be so overwhelmed with excitement. Let's set up three tents. Let's do something. Bring some food, fatten calf. I mean, whatever it might be at that moment, there's the excitement that's there. But why these two individuals? We, we look back through the Old Testament, we think of all the people who could appear in this scene, why these two individuals? And there's a number of reasons um, that could be set forth. Just let me just give five really quick. Um, they both had interesting end-of-life experiences. Elijah, if you remember, um, 2 Kings chapter 2, verse 11, if you haven't read that story, perfect story to go back and read in your Old Testament. Elijah rides the chariot into heaven. Unbelievable. What a scene that must be. Look up artwork on the chariot going into heaven. It's amazing to, to try to think about what this would have looked like. But then there's also Moses. The end of his life is really weird. When you go to Deuteronomy 34, he dies and then God buries him. And no one knows where his bones are. In rabbinic tradition, trying to understand this, they actually said that God took his bones to heaven. That's what it means that, that um, you couldn't find his bones. I mean, God just took him to heaven with him. And so, you know, some would say it's just their interesting end-of-life experiences. But we also see the lives that they lived. Both were faithful servants who suffered because of their obedience they were rejected by the people of God, were vindicated by God. You look at these two lives and you read all the way through and that's what you see. And now, here they are with Jesus and this is exactly what's transpiring for Jesus as well. He also is going to be a faithful servant who suffers because of his obedience. He's rejected by the people of God and he will be vindicated. He will rise again from the dead. The grave cannot hold him. 
You could also say that both had amazing experiences with God. Moses would go up and meet with God at Mount Sinai and he would come down, his face was just glowing so that he put a veil over it. And he would go into the presence of God and move the veil, come back to the presence of the people and pull the veil back down. This amazing experience that he had with God. And then we've already mentioned Elijah who was taken up to heaven in that chariot of fire. We could also reference the fact that they both have future expectations in God's kingdom work. Moses, as he's proclaiming to the people in Deuteronomy chapter 18, 15 through 18, talks about a prophet like me, one who is going to come. And ultimately, this is looking forward to God's future work, ultimately fulfilled by Jesus. And then we've also got Elijah. We go to Malachi um, and look at the last couple of chapters there. And it talks about one who is going to come, that forerunner that's going to announce again that Jesus is coming. Jesus is later on in this passage going to say, Elijah has has come and then the other gospels help make it clear it was John the Baptist is the one who came but all of them looking forward pointing toward Christ in other words God is moving forward his plan it also could be that Moses represents the law and Elijah represents the prophets and so here we've got the these major sections of the Bible the law and all that it contains and now we have Moses standing there with Jesus and the the prophets and all the ones that were pointing to God constantly and now there he is standing with Jesus as well and we see that that this represents God's eternal work God has been moving. God has been working, bringing about a redemptive plan throughout the Bible. And then we see all of this right there. And Jesus is a part of that. He's the one who's going to complete this work. Everything that Moses was about was pointing to Jesus. Everything Elijah was about was pointing to Jesus. And now they, they are all there together. God's redemptive work, the plan that he's working out in this world. And then all of a sudden, they're gone and only Jesus remains. We get a glimpse that God's purposes are moving forward, that he is advancing his eternal plan to redeem. And we must not lose sight of this in our everyday lives. And the disciples cannot lose sight of that in their everyday life. The way things are gonna transpire for them is not the way they planned it. And they've gotta have something to hold on to. And God gives that to them. And it says there that they were talking with Jesus And we don't, Matthew, Mark doesn't say anything about what was being said, but listen to what Luke says about this moment in chapter nine, verse 31. Beginning in verse 30, and behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory as well and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. And so, Matthew, I mean, Luke tells us exactly what they were talking about. Jesus has been trying to prepare his disciples. The son of man must die, be buried and rise again on the third day. And he's sitting there talking or standing there talking with Moses and Elijah about how all these events are going to transpire. And that's when Peter speaks up and he says, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. And we could spend time trying to figure out what Peter was trying to say here. I'm just going to stick with the commentary that we have right here in the Bible. It goes on and it makes it very clear for us. He did not know what to say. And we're just going to leave it at that. He is terrified. In other words, he should have just been quiet right now. 
And so why unpack what he might have meant? He should have just been quiet is what it's telling us. He starts talking, but he should have just been taking all of this in. And then all of a sudden, there, um, Moses and Elijah are gone. Um, well, before that all happens, a cloud overshadows them and a voice comes out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. So there's Moses who is highly revered and his voice still speaks in the law. And they listen to what Moses had to say. And there's Elijah, the prophets, whose voice still speaks. And they listen to the prophets. And this voice comes from heaven and says, this one right here is my beloved son. You listen to him. And then the other two fade. And they're gone. And there just remains Jesus. And as they were coming down the mountain, verse 9, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. There it is again. Jesus is still trying to prepare him for this. You keep this quiet until I rise from the dead. And that leads to a question. Why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And Jesus explains that Elijah must come to restore. And much could be said about Elijah. But Elijah is not the central issue. So Jesus is going to come back with a counter question. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer? Many things. You see where Jesus is trying to keep the focus? He's trying to continue to set before them that something is about to happen. In fact, in Matthew 17, a parallel passage, I love the way it, ex way it explains it here. In the second part of verse 12, what Jesus is saying, but I, I tell you that Elijah's already come and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also... The Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Even there, the focus on Elijah is his suffering. And now Jesus wants to bring it back to him. And the focus is on his suffering. It's that combo again of Daniel chapter 7, Isaiah 53. The king who comes must die in order to redeem humanity so that we can be invited into the kingdom. So as Elijah's coming announced the Lord's coming, so his rejection warns of the Lord's rejection. The rejection and execution of the forerunner, John the Baptist, he lost his head, got his head chopped off, was a prophecy, a foreshadowing of the rejection and execution of the Messiah who's about to come. They want to talk about Elijah. Jesus wants to talk about his death because that's becoming the focus of everything. Well, what is the point of all this? Those are just some interesting items from the transfiguration. But what do we, what's our takeaway uh, from all of this? What can we bring into our own lives? And I want us to enter the lives of the disciples for just a moment. Life as they experience it day by day. Let's just enter their lives. They're, they're doing ministry with Jesus. They've already seen some amazing things, miracles. They've marveled at Jesus' teaching. I mean, they've seen lame people walking and blind people seeing, deaf people hearing, uh, mute people talking. I mean, they've seen it all. But yet they, they just continue on day by day and they don't quite get fully what Jesus is all about. And Jesus is trying to make it clear to them that he's about to suffer. Look at chapter 8, verse 31. It's where Eric was a few, years, a few weeks ago. And he began to teach, yes, maybe it feels like a few years to some of us, but just a couple of weeks ago. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. He's just putting it out there. 
He's trying to make this very clear to them. Now, when they come down the mountain, again, he says in verse 12, and how is it written the son of man, of the son of man, that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? And so the disciples are confused about this. They don't know exactly what to say. We go on to verse 31 in chapter nine. He says again, he was teaching his disciples, the son of man is going to be delivered in the hands of men and they will kill him. And when he is killed after three days, he will rise. But they did not understand what they were saying and he's afraid to ask. In the midst of Jesus, trying to make it clear to them exactly what is transpiring in front of them, right in the middle of that, what happens is God shows his glory. He breaks into that mundane of everyday life to give them something to hold on to. The glory, Christ is transfigured right in front of them, transformed right from a voice from heaven. This is my son, you listen to him. God gives them something to hold on to. You see, what's going on here is God is preparing them He's given them something to hold on to as they're going to begin walking in the darkness. I mean, let's think about even what's going on. Jesus is announcing he will suffer, die, be resurrected. Peter rebukes him. And then later on, Jesus announces it again. They don't understand, but they're afraid to ask. They don't know what to do with all of this stuff. And so right there in the middle, God is trying to give them something to hold on to. And you can see they don't get it right away. But if we were to go to 2 Peter In chapter 1, verses 16 through 18, you can begin to see the way this scene impacts them. They do have something to hold on to. Peter says there, for we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We didn't make all this stuff up, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard. We heard it. This very voice born from heaven for we were with him on the holy mountain. In the midst of all this life going on for them, God gives them something to hold on to. And I think there's a truth that we can pull out of this in our own lives because we also are living day by day by day in all of our lives and we can get distracted and pulled away. We can get caught up in the little things and right in the middle of this, right here in this passage, God is trying to give us something to hold on to as well. And one of the truths we find in this particular passage is as we follow Jesus, he will prepare us to face the next situation. He did this for the disciples right here and he's doing it for you. He is the great I am who is for us and will be with us. Constantly, God is preparing you. When you open up your Bible and faithfully try to read the contents, God is preparing you. Maybe it's been weeks since you went to church and the day you showed up, God is preparing you. What is your next situation? Whatever that is, maybe you feel like you're in it right now and God needs to give you something to hold on to or maybe you have no idea what's next, but God is giving you something to hold on to. He's gonna meet you right where you are just like he did the disciples and they didn't get it right away, but little by little, it began to sink into their lives. This is who God is. He says to us, 
my grace is sufficient for you. And so he gives us something to hold on to. Now, I also want us to consider another point from this particular passage. Again, I want us to go back and consider the, the disciples. They're just going through life little by little. And again, God breaks right in. But let me emphasize something this time. When he breaks in, he gives them an important reminder. This is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. My chosen one, listen to him. Now, what I've done with that extended statement is by looking at each of the Gospels, all the words that are used, I just pulled them all together. That's the most complete statement of what God said. This is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. My chosen one, listen to him, is the point that's being made there. They're afraid to ask all that's going on. This is not going to turn out the way they expected it to. Because of the suffering that is coming, the disciples are about to walk into some of the darkest days that they are ever going to experience. And right in the middle of that, God is going to give them an eternal perspective again. And he's going to remind them that they need to hear. He says, listen to him. All of their hopes, all of their expectations, all of the way that they expect this to turn out, they're going to need to put that aside and put their hope in Jesus. He's the one that they need to listen to. Not rebuking him, listening. And there's only one kind of listening that you find in the Bible. That's obedient listening. It's a listening that actually hears and does. That's the only kind of understanding that we have in the Bible. And so as we follow Jesus, walking into our unknown future as well, we are to be listening to him as well. I mean, listen to what Second Peter goes on and says. Now, we might say, well, if God would just, if God in his glory would just break into my life for just a moment, boy, that would give me something to hold on to. I'd listen. Notice what Peter says. He's already talking about the fact that they were eyewitnesses and they heard the voice come from, down from heaven. It says, we ourselves, verse 18, heard this very voice born from heaven for we were with him on the mountain. Now, notice what he goes on and says in verse 19, and this is so huge for us to hear. And, man, we saw all that. We heard the voice. And we have something more sure. The prophetic word to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Peter says, we've got a sure word here. And in the same way God's voice came down from heaven and proclaimed on that mountain, you listen to him, that voice is trying to break into our lives today as well. And it's trying to remind us, we've got to listen to him. We've got to listen to everything that God has revealed to us. We've got to make sure that we hear his word and do it. His word is sufficient for us. It is what we need. This is what we are to feed on. In that video, we talked about gathering together for, to, eat, to eat physical food while they also eat spiritual food. This is our spiritual food. Joni and I do a lot of premarital counseling throughout the years. And one of the questions that we have come to ask is about roles and responsibilities in marriage. Where do you learn your roles and responsibilities in marriage? Now, for me and Joni and probably for everyone we meet with, primarily it's mom and dad. That's the marriage that we saw growing up and primarily that's what speaks into us as we think about what it means to be a husband and a wife. But second for me and Joni was what the Bible teaches. The Bible has something to say 
about roles and responsibilities in marriage. What we are finding increasingly with young people that we meet with is what the Bible says about roles and responsibilities is slowly moving down the list of priority. Where is it that people are learning about how to live life in one of the most central relationships we have, marriage? Is it God's word? No, that's starting to move down the list. And I think that the message we need to hear is God saying, we gotta listen to him. We gotta listen to him. The word of God has got to become central in our lives. And so we have got to be a people who are opening his word. And maybe you don't have a habit of reading God's word. Maybe you aren't giving that the time and attention that you need to in your life. Just begin somewhere. Begin with some kind of desire to open up God's word and let it feed you. Because God said to them, you listen to him in the midst of all your confusion, not knowing what to do with life. You listen to him. And in the midst of all of our confusion, not knowing what to do with life, we also need to be a people who listen. We think about one more experience in their lives. Again, they're going through life day by day, somehow recognizing the, the, all the mundane things that be happening. They're following Jesus. Jesus is doing his little routine with them and they're involved in life with him. But when this happens, they get a reminder that life is bigger than their little world. See, we can oftentimes get caught up in our little world and we can begin to live as if God is not. And we just go through our days and it, and it may be a whole week from church to church that we even think about what God is doing in this world, how he is at work. We are basically living as practical atheists, living as if God is not. But in the midst of that, again, God breaks in and he wants to jolt them and to remind them that they are to live as if God is. Life is not ultimately about life in this world. There's something bigger that's going on and God has invited us into it. Regardless of whatever they're going to encounter in the days ahead, no matter how dark it gets, no matter how much suffering will be there and each one of them will die for their belief in Jesus, except for John the Baptist. The rest of them will be martyred and John suffered quite a bit regardless of what they're going to face, they need to realize that it's a little bit bigger than their little world and they need to live as if God exists. But celebration is coming. It's just not yet. Oftentimes, we live as if God is not. We can be prayerless. We have a relationship with the King of King and Lord of Lords, the creator of the world, and yet we can be prayerless. We just live as if he's not. We can be full of anxiety, despairing, looking to created things to bring us life, being angry at being wronged or not appreciated, frustrated. We can lack faith. We're living as if God is not. Despite what events happen in this world, Jesus is still in his glory. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. He is moving everything forward to accomplish his purposes. And we must encourage one another, as we saw at the end of our reading service last week, in chapter 13, verse 37, and what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Stay awake. And we've all got to remember that God is and that he's on his throne 
and that we are to live our lives in light of him. We cannot be a people who live as if he is not and neglect that. And how do we do that again? Again, we've got to keep God in our everyday life and his word is what helps us do that. It reminds us, okay, God is. And God is at work in this world and I'm a part of that. And we take all of our experiences and we bring them into the greater work that God is doing. And then there's just one last Well, I didn't get to this truth, did I? Life is bigger than we can see is the point that I was making there. We've got to live as if God is. Facing each situation in our life with keen awareness that we are part of the plan that he is working out. He is. And he is watching over you. And he is in control of what's going on in this world. Earthly life cannot be all about heavenly visions. This is a moment in time for the disciples where God shows up in glory. Jesus is transfigured before them and then boom, it's all gone and they get on with everyday life again. But they've got to continue to live as if God is. They've got to continue to allow God to be God in all of their life. And then just one last truth if I can just add it on to all of these. This glimpse of Jesus reminds us that this world is not our fallen home. Again, when God breaks in, there is glory. And they are reminded that the fallen world in which they live, the pain, the suffering, the disease, the people that they continue to bump up against who are Um, just devastated by the effects of living in a fallen world, the broken homes, the broken marriages, the kids without parents, the orphans. I mean, all these, as they continue to bump up against all this stuff, they begin to realize this world is not our final home. There is more. Because what what God does in this moment that he breaks in, there's gonna be an, an eternal breaking in that is still yet to come. When God breaks in the next time, the kingdom of this world will become the kingdom of our Lord. It will all be his. All things old will be passed away. Everything will become new. There is more. And we are to live with this in mind. So just major point, takeaway, what is it? We are to live with glory in view. Glory in your view In this scene in Mark chapter 9, what I think God does is give the disciples something to hold on to so they realize it's not about their little world. It's bigger than this. So they realize in the midst of living the mundane of life, they are to listen to him. In the midst of the life that they're going through, they've got to see the grander picture. And I think God is calling us to do that today too. As we live in our lives, we've got to listen As we live in our lives, we've got to realize the bigger. As we live in our lives, we've got to live as if God is. Live as if he is. Bowing before him, looking to him, feeding on him. Gathering together with other believers in our grace groups and growing together. Continuing to come to church and feeding on the word of God. Making yourself disciplined tomorrow morning to get up and open up your Bible and say, by faith, God, feed me. I want to listen to you. I want to hear your words. We've got to be a people that have something to hold on to and that something is our Lord Jesus Christ and the word that he's given to us. I'm going to ask you all to bow your heads.
And Walt's going to come up and he's going to lead us in a song. But I want us to take a moment right now in the quietness of our hearts. We really believe that God's word is alive. And so as your heads are bowed and as your eyes are closed, I invite you to, to consider what it means for you to hold on to something this morning. Consider what it means for God's glory to break into your life and for you to live as if God is. For you to listen to his voice. What are those areas of your life that have become so routine there's no place for God? Invite him in. Invite him in. What are the voices that you are listening to as you make decisions in your life? Are you listening to God and to his word? What priority does his, his word have in your life? Who are you hanging out with in your life? Are they leading you toward the one who gives life? Or are they leading you away? And maybe you're living as if God is not. What are the decisions, the changes, the choices that you need to make in your life so that you can be living with eternal realities in mind? Ask God right now to teach you and then Walt will lead us.